If you think about the theme that you've been hearing in the music, I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and we welcome you again. What would be a word that comes to your mind? This is not a rhetorical question. This is more a Phil Donahue kind of a dialogue together here. What would be a word that comes to your mind? You think about the music and the worship that we've experienced. What's one word that comes to your mind? Grace, yes, grace. We heard mercy, grace, two sides of the same coin in some ways. It's all about God's grace. And this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, sin and grace. It's not a coincidence that we've just worshiped about grace, and now we're going to talk about it. And the whole theme of when sin and grace collide, what do we do? I want to set up this morning as we talk about the Chronicles of the Kings. We're on another king that uh, is by the name of King Ahaz. And you have an outline that is available for you that looks exactly like the one I have in my hand here. And you'll notice on that you'll see a chart of the kings that we have covered and the various dates and times. You'll also notice some of the prophets have been added to it. King Ahaz was ruling in the southern part of what we call Judah and the northern part of the ten tribes in the north were Israel. So Israel in the north, two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south. And that is what God has given to us. Let me, let me set up this morning with a story. There's a pastor of a church similar to ours. And he had a ministry that was going well, but he had a struggle with his daughter. His daughter is about 15, 16 years old. And uh, she was very rebellious. They couldn't get her to do anything. And he's the pastor of the church. And he thinks he should have had it all in hand, but he did not. And she was using birth control. She was spending the nights away. They didn't know where she was. They didn't know what to do. It was one of those tough, tough situations. How much heavy-handedness in terms of controlling versus uh, the sort of the liberty and the freedom that you don't want to squish and cause her to even rebel even more. So he and his wife were really struggling with what to do with their daughter. And so it was tough. And he writes about one day when he was standing there looking out the front window of his home. And their daughter was not home at that time. As a matter of fact, she had spent the whole night somewhere else and they didn't know where she was. And he was fuming in rage and anger at her outright disobedience to what she knew and what they knew was what she should be doing. So there's tremendous rebellion in his heart. He was so angry with her. He wanted to, you know, in a loving way, squeeze her around the neck. His only... And only a parent can do it in a loving way. So he's so angry. And then early that next morning, he was actually, as I said, looking out the front door, front window of the house. And there she comes walking up the sidewalk to their home. And he said it was a real struggle at that point because he felt so much rage. But as soon as she walked inside the bedroom and stood there with him, he couldn't do anything but just want to hug her and embrace her and love her, and she's so, he's so glad that she is home. And it was that, that collision of what he knows is true and the grace of what he wants to extend to her. And he described himself in this way with one little phrase. He said, I was a helpless, lovesick father. A helpless, lovesick father. And that's a good description of God that we're going to see in him today. A helpless, not helpless in the sort of can't do anything about it, but helpless in the sense of this heartfelt empathy, lovesick condition that he has for you and for me. 
So we're going to talk about this whole rebellion that goes on. One of the reasons we're in the Old Testament, I'd like to remind you this verse, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, is in Romans 15, 4. Why do we go to the Old Testament and the stories that are there? Because the Apostle Paul says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. See, these stories instruct us so that through perseverance, so that we would persevere, that when we have stories that may have similar parallels to the stories that we read, when we have stories of rebellion, when we have people that are outright uh, being disobedient to what we know is true, when we see stories like that in the Old Testament and then we experience it in our day, that we would have perseverance and encouragement so that we might have hope. So God says, let me tell you stories of people that really did some terrible, terrible things so that you can see and experience their story because you will find parallels in your story and you will know that I was the God over that time. I worked it out. I'll be the God over your time. I'll work it out for you. So that's why Romans 15.4 is so good for us to know. This is where the Old Testament and New Testament, they collide. Let me show you another collision of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's a great passage. I love Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to this guy, Titus. And he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. Wouldn't you love to have a message where I get up there and just tell all of you that you are hating, you are hateful, you are full of malice, you're full of envy, you're foolish, you're disobedient, you're enslaved. That's what Paul was doing to them. He said, you're you're a terrible group of people. I'm so sick and tired of the way you're behaving. So he describes this terrible condition, the sinful, sinful state. I want to pick on four of the words that you see there, but I'm going to highlight them in the yellow. I want you to see this progression. I don't know whether Paul meant this to be a progression of evil, but I'm going to interpret it that way. One of the reasons that we love to reach people for Jesus Christ when they're children is that it doesn't allow them in their adulthood to move to this level down here of being enslaved. The challenge for us is that there is condition of sin. Just as gravity will always pull us down, there is spiritual gravity of sin always pulling us down. And that gravity goes this way. First of all, we're foolish. I do not know the truth and I sin. For example, the first time I rode my bicycle through a stop sign and a cop pulled me over, I pleaded foolish ignorance. He explained that you have to obey all the laws of an automobile. I said, thank you very much, officer. He says, I'll let you off with a warning this time. The second time I went through that very same stop sign and that cop pulled me over, That was disobedience. I knew the truth, but I still sinned. So he pulled me over again. And he said to me, haven't I pulled you over before? And of course, I wanted to plead the fifth. Well, I can't be for sure that you were the one, because you all look the same in those uniforms. (laughs) But we had a nice little discussion about it, and he let me off. That's what you call grace. He says, but next time, I'll write you a ticket. Well, there's been no next time because I don't want to go to the next level. Deception, Paul says, is when I begin to distort the truth. It's not just that I know the truth and I choose to disobey it. What happens in the progression of sin, as sin becomes my master, I begin to distort what God says. 
I am deceived. It's the Greek word we've talked about it here, planeo, where I'm orbiting around the wrong thing. I'm going somewhere, but it's around the wrong thing. And so God says, I don't want you to reach this stage of life that you have been so disobedient, so repeatedly disobedient, that now you're actually distorting what I've said. Here, at least in disobedience, you know what I said, but now you've reached the stage where you're going to distort it, as if I didn't say, don't do those things. And then the problem is that as long as you are being deceived and you continue to live that way, you get to this last stage, which is the worst. You're enslaved. You're addicted. You are so consumed with the sinful behavior, you no longer feel guilt. It doesn't feel wrong. You just do it freely. And for you, it is what is the the cliche of today, it is the new normal. And so you just think, this is who I am. This is how I am. This is how God has created me. He has always wanted me to have this kind of behavior. And so this is this progression, this gravitational pull. And so we want to grab people way up here when they're foolish and disobedient so they don't get to this stage where it's so much harder to pull them out. And I know that many of us in this room have people that are somewhere down in here. And I know you're praying like crazy for them. Now here's the beautiful thing. As we continue on in Titus 3, after Paul talks about these conditions, he comes here, and I love this word, but. Do you realize in the Bible there are good buts and there are bad buts? We all like good buts, right? I'm talking about one T. So get your minds out of There are good buts and bad buts. Last week we saw a bad but. Uzziah, wonderful, wow, living for, the, for God, for Yahweh, prosperity, success. And then in that text, I think it's verse 16, but, and the Uzziah, his downfall occurs, spiritually speaking. Here, we've seen the decay of gravitational pull, and then Paul says, but, when the kindness of God our Savior, his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. As we have sung about mercy. Kiri Eliason, Greek, Lord have mercy. And so God says, I want to bring you to this but where I take you from that sinful condition and shape you through a God who comes to us in kindness, love, mercy. That's the but that we want. So we're going to talk about the good but as well as the sin. So Let's get to the Old Testament story. You've heard the Old New Testament. Here's the story that illustrates what Paul just said, and I'll try to illustrate that for you as we go along. The Old Testament story you have in your outline that I encourage you to follow along because it's going to be a whole lot better for you and for me as well as for that matter of fact. And we come to this king by the name of King Ahaz. King Ahaz, let me read the first four verses. Notice how sinful he is. This is the foolish disobedience, deception, and enslavement of sin of King Ahaz. In verse 28 of 2 Chronicles 28, Old Testament, look in the table of contents if you need to, Bible on the chair rack in front of you. If you don't have your own, pull up on the phone. That way you don't have to memorize the books of the Bible. And uh, that's just an easier way to do it. 
Second Chronicles 28 says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. Here's some of the sinful things that King Ahaz did. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Those are the false idolatrous practices of that day. Moreover, he burned incense. And this is where it just gets downright just so X-rated. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and burned his sons in fire. King Ahaz is taking his own children. He's going what is outside the walls of Jerusalem to this valley, this valley that's called Hinnom. And Geh means valley, so we call it Gehenna. And Gehenna, Jesus is used for the term of hell. So there is Gehenna. You can still go to Jerusalem and see outside, you see this valley. And this is where this idolatrous practices of Molech, the goddess Molech. And they would sacrifice their children to this god of Molech. So he brings his children and he burns them in this fire of Gehenna. According to the abomination of the nations which the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. I mean, that is just pervasive. It is everywhere. It is disobedience. It's enslavement. He's addicted to this Baal idolatrous worship. And so you read that. And I don't know about you, but I'd be, if I'm God, I'm pretty angry. I'm like the pastor who doesn't know where his daughter is all night long. And there's tremendous anger at her rebellion as there would be by God at Ahaz's rebellion. So that's how bad Ahaz was. We read on. Second point is this. God teaches us in this passage in verse 5, there is a price to be paid for disobedience. You cannot sin and not pay a price. Somebody has to pay a price. And verse 5, Therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram. The king of Aram, that's, a, that's Syria. We know Syria today. Aram is that northern part of Israel. It is the Syria that we know of today. So that's a different name for Syria in those days, Damascus and the like. So God brings this king of Aram or Syria to him, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered in the hands of the king of Israel who inflicted him with heavy casualties. Remember, God did this in verse 5. God brought the penalty of his own sin on his own life. For Pekah, who was the king of Israel, again, the ten northern tribes, they come down, they attack King Ahaz, as did the king of Syria, attacks King Ahaz, for Pekah, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah, and get this, 120,000 in one day. 120,000 people die in one day because King Ahaz is rebelling against God in some of the worst ways possible. Just astounding. The price tag of sin is so high. And that's why I like to quote my favorite theologian. You never find in sin what you enter sin to find. And you can take that to the bank. Use it anywhere you want. But I have copyrights to that <laughs> saying. So I may sue you if you don't use it without my permission. So there's 120,000 die in one day. They're all valiant men. So these weren't, you know, slough-off people that just didn't count. These are tremendous people. 
because they had forsaken the Lord God their fathers. God says, man, you just can't sin and get away with it. There is a price to be paid. And Zikri, the mighty man of Ephraim, which is the northern part of Israel as well. Sometimes Ephraim is used instead of Israel. You can refer to the same territory and often. Slew Messiah, Messiah, the king's son. So here's the king Ahaz's children are getting killed. And as Rika, the ruler of the house of Elkanah, the second to the king. So the sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. And they took also a great deal of spoil with them, and they brought the spoil to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. So you can see 120,000 men died. 200,000 wives, women, sons, and daughters are stolen away and taken captive. You see that still in the Middle East today where they take these people away. And the Boko Haram who have taken these young girls so they would have wives for their warriors. I mean, this kind of thing still occurs in parts of the world. And that's the price tag of sin. And then you read on. And here I'm going to point out but God sees all this terrible sin going on. He might have been tempted to come and like he did in the days of, of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, just come and just, I just want to wipe you all out. You're just, you're just hopeless. But here's a good but. But this is what God loves to do. He takes us in our worst rebellion. He takes those of us who might be like the pastor with the daughter, the 15, 16-year-old daughter, or you just feel this rage, why are you doing this? You know that's wrong to do. And yet then there is this helpless, lovesick father that still wants to embrace her. So this is our God. But God begins to intervene. We read in verse 9. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army which came to Samaria. And he said to them, so he's, te- he's talking to the Israelites that have stolen 200,000 women. He's going to the northern tribes, not to King Ahaz. He goes out to meet the army which came to Samaria and he said, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your father, was angry with Judah, where King Ahaz was ruling, so he's angry with him. He is that raging God who doesn't like such disobedience. And they delivered them into your hand, and you have slain them in the rage which has haven't reached even heaven. So there's this tremendous rage that's going on. And he says it's so broad and vast that even heaven is in a rage over your rage that's going on. So it's terrible, terrible things. Now he says in verse 10, Now if you are proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves, surely do you not have transgression of your own against the Lord your God? Now, therefore, listen to me. Return the captives whom you've captured from your brothers. For the burning anger is against you. So you are coming in in anger, being used by God to rebuke and discipline Judah. But you're doing it in a way that is over the top, and now God is going to come and get you. This is a struggle of truth and grace. And then some of the son, heads of the sons of Ephraim and these people, I'm gonna, you can read their name and Google how to pronounce it for yourself. Those people arose up against those who were coming from the battle, and they said to them, you must not bring the captives here, for you're proposing to bring upon us guilt against the Lord, adding to our sins and our guilt, 
for our guilt is great so that his burning anger is against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the officers and all the assembly. And then this verse 15, I just wanted to highlight it. Notice in your text as well as on the screen. Then the men who were designated by some arose. They took the captives and they clothed all their naked ones from the spoil. And they gave them clothes and sandals and fed them and gave them drink. And it goes on to describe the good that they did. Let me just make a point. You read over that and say, oh God, what, what's a takeaway from that? Here's my takeaway. We look around the world and we see a lot of evil. We see people doing things that are disobedient. They're deceived. They're enslaved. They're sin. And we, we feel a righteous anger. And we might have people in our own family that are doing some of those things. And I feel a righteous anger. Sometimes there's people that I know about in our own family. I just want to slap them silly in a loving kind of a way. And, and the thing that I notice about this is that God says, yes, there is a price to be paid for sin, but there is a grace of God that steps in before the final price is paid. I don't want to be like the Israelites. Now, what we can get in an evangelical church like ours, we can get all self-righteous about some of the behaviors of certain groups of people. We can all have this righteous indignation. I get it. But God doesn't call us to be judgmental to other people. He calls us to do what these people did. He says, I I don't like what they're doing, and I want you to bring the truth to their hearts and their minds, but I don't want you to get out of hand so that who are you to judge them, as Obed says to these people. He says, you don't have any sinless condition yourself. So who are you to judge these Judah people, women, children, daughters, sons, Who are you to judge them because you're not sinless? So back away. I want you to treat them in grace. I want you to give to them what maybe they don't deserve. But now I want you to give them all that they need. And when we look around us and we see people who are being disobedient to God, it's not because God wants us to go around there and just judge them, condemn them, label them with labels. He says, I want you to go and do what these people did. I want you to give them grace. It's that positive but. But when the kindness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to us in love, he gives to us this. So that's the beauty of God's grace. So he he says, I want you to come to them so they will humbly. Here's the key. I want you to bring them to a humble, gracious gift of Christ through faith and repentance. So God brings them to this point of humility where they are broken before God. Read it on. Let me just read on for the sake of time. It says there after verse 15, verse 16, at that time King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria the help. For again the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away the captives. And the Philistines had invaded the cities of the lowland, the Negev of Judah, and all the taken of these uh, cities and communities. And verse 19, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, the king of Israel, for he had brought about the lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. And this is the thing that I wanted to highlight. See, this is what happens when sin continues on. He became very yet more unfaithful. This progression of sin from foolish to disobedient to deception to enslavement. 
and to recognize this thing of going down. So we come and we want to intervene. We want to stop that. And this is what God is doing. He's bringing these people out of Judah. They're feeling the rebuke. 120,000 valiant men died. So it's not like an easy price tag. So there's a price to be paid, but there is this grace that is built into it to bring humility of heart that they would turn back to the Lord. And this is, this is all that God wants to do. He wants to be like the lovesick father that just does nothing but embrace this disobedient child. That's what he wants to do. I came across this this last week. Here's a Japanese word, and I don't know how to pronounce it, but Rachel, maybe you know how to pronounce it. you recognize that? Rachel served over in Japan. Do you recognize that word? Kintsukroi. Kintsukroi. Am I saying it correctly? I didn't Google how to pronounce that either. So Kintsukroi. Some of you might remember some months ago, maybe it's years ago, I used this term uh, wabi-sabi. Am I saying that right? Wabi-sabi. That's another Greek term similar to it. What I like about this is that Kintsukroi means golden joinery or patch with gold. What the Japanese would do is they'll take a dish that maybe fell off the shelf and cracked, and it's all broken, and they'll glue it back together, and it's called kintsu kuroi. And they'll take those cracks, and they will put gold in all those cracks so that it actually has more value after it's broken than before it's broken. And for them... They look at this, and this is the prize piece that they would pay money, good money for. And what I love about that is this, this is an image of grace, that we're all fractured. Remember that song we just sang, we're all broken vessels. And that God comes and he wants to mend us together in Jesus. Not to judge us, but to take the price of our sin and put it on Jesus so that we can have this gold that wraps all around every fracture of our hearts. So they can mend what's broken and make beautiful what once looked ugly. So God wants for us kintsukuroi, that he wants the gold of grace to fill in the broken fractures of our hearts and our lives, the relationships, the hardships, the 16-year-old girl that has run away and the lovesick father embraces her. This is our God. This is King Ahaz's story. And here's where it gets even more powerful. Here's the best part of the message. So please wake up your neighbor. King Ahaz lived in a period of time when Isaiah lived. Isaiah was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament history. And in Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to read it there, let me turn to Isaiah chapter 7. I love this section. Isaiah comes to King Ahaz. And he says, King Ahaz, we want to we win you over. See, all this rebellion's gone on. He's destroyed his children. He's burned his children in Gehenna. He's lost 120,000 valiant men. 200,000 women children are taken away captive. They're being held in Samaria, but at least they're being fed and cared for. In the midst of all this ugly rebellion, God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz. And Isaiah says to King Ahaz in verse 8 of Isaiah 7, For the head of Aram, remember head of Aram, Assyria, he has a partnership with uh, Pekah, who is the king of Israel. So the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. Remember, Ephraim is just a number, another title for the 
10 northern tribes of Israel because it's the largest of all the tribes. God says to them uh, in the uh, uh, early 700 B.C. era, he says to them, something like 760 or 750, somewhere in that range, he says to them, in 65 years, Israel is going to cease to exist. In 722, Israel ceased to exist. So Isaiah is giving to King Ahaz a prophecy that in 65 years, Israel is going to stop, and they did. Assyria came in and destroyed them. In verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelah. That's King Pekah that we saw. For if you would not believe, you will surely not last. And here is what God does, and this is what God wants to do for everybody who's in rebellion. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol, which is the Old Testament concept of hell, or as high as heaven. In other words, there's nothing too, too big or too small. Anything you want, ask. But here's Ahaz's heart. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He just refuses to do it. God says, I'll do anything, any miracle you want. You want to bring back those children that you burned in Gehenna? You want to bring back the 120,000 valiant men that were slaughtered by the northern tribes? You want to restore the 200 women and children that were stolen away and captive? Anything, ask me. Anything as high as heaven, as low as hell, ask me. King Ahaz, in his own rebellion, says, no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play that game. Just outright rebellion. This is enslavement. It's gone from foolish to disobedient to the sense of deception. Now he's just enslaved to his sin. Here is God asking him for any gift he ever would want in life. Anything, if anything. And he doesn't. He think, what's wrong with this guy? So King Ahaz refuses. Then in verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? That you will try the patience of my God as well. God is a very patient God, but don't try his patience of waiting. Then verse 14 is one of the great verses in the Bible. One of the greatest in the Bible. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. God comes to King Ahaz. One of the most rebellious, wicked kings in the Old Testament who has burned his own children in Gehenna. And God says, ask for anything. I won't ask. But God says, I'm going to, in grace, in grace, I'm still going to do what you don't ask for. A virgin will be with child. Matthew chapter 1 quotes that passage as it was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. This is God's, one of his earliest predictions that I'm going to send a Messiah who will be born of a virgin. And that will be God with you, Emmanuel. That I will not abandon you, Ahaz. You, I asked, you declined, but I'm still going to give you grace. This is just amazing. I still in grace want to reach out to you. And this is where you and I come in. 
Because God says, no matter what the sin is that you have done, I still come and I say to you, I will give to you the greatest gift you can ever receive. And what's that gift? It's the gift of redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Remember Paul says in in Titus 3, he says, you have these foolish, disobedient, deception and enslavement sins that are pulling you down, but God in his kindness sends his son Jesus to come and be your redeemer and pull you back. God with us, Emmanuel. This is the beauty of King Ahaz, the story of grace in the center of all kinds of sin. And God wants you and me to be the story of grace as well. Let me wrap it up with a, a great little story. I read this last week. You know, churches love to uh, compare notes about how ministry goes. I read about another church that is similar to ours that has a nursery much like we do on either side of these walls. And there was a woman by the name of Janet that came with her little children to the nursery for the very first time. And Janet wasn't accustomed to churches. This is sort of her first time going to church. So she brings her kids in, puts them in the nursery, goes to the service, goes back to get her kids after the service is over, and when she comes to the nursery worker, the volunteer, the nursery worker says, I'm sorry, we had, we had, some, we had some challenges with your children, but we're, we're okay. And she describes how one of the children had broken a number of the toys that were in the nursery, was completely disobedient to the nursery workers and throwing things, just out of control, just out of control behavior. And when this mom, her name is Janet, when Janet was told this, she grabbed her children, yelled at her children, and yelled out a very loud four-letter word starting with S. So sick and tired. No, that wasn't the word, but you get the idea. So it's like, whoa, people are kind of like, you know, you don't typically hear that language here. Typically, you don't. And so everybody's kind of taken aback, and so Janet grabbed her kids up and just marched off the church and The nursery worker thought she'd never probably see her again because Janet was pretty humiliated as well at the disobedience of her children. But that volunteer nursery worker then chased down what is the version of our card, the card, to get that woman's name and address and was able to get it. That nursery worker then sent a letter to Janet. And this is what she wrote to Janet. Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange when you picked them up in front of the nursery, let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. (laughs) I'm really drawn to honesty, and you are clearly a very honest person. I hope we can become friends, love, and an unnamed nursery worker. Well, Janet got that letter, and that Janet, Janet and that nursery worker connected that next week. And that Janet came back to church the next Sunday, came back the next Sunday, came back the next Sunday, and Janet became a follower of Jesus. Emmanuel came in grace to call her. She became converted, discipled, and then Janet became the leader and the director of the nursery. It's just incredible. There's these amazing stories of redemption. 
But what I loved about the nursery workers' outreach to Janet, I love your honesty, Janet. You know what you call that? Grace. Remember when we started? Grace. She comes to this woman in the midst of her turbulence, and she found out that Janet was a heroin addict. And she was totally out of control, but God changed her. God changed her. That God loves to change people who are totally out of control in sin. And you and I, we need to remember, whether we're the ones who have the sin or whether we have family or friends who have the sin, that God is never beyond saying, ask me for anything. And I will eventually then send to you Emmanuel, God with us, that his grace will come and redeem you from the foolish, disobedient deception and enslavement of sin that the God who has the kindness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would come and interact with us. If God will send such a gracious gift to such an evil king of King Ahaz, how much more does he want to reach us? How much more does he want to reach those of us who have family and friends who are immersed in sin and they seem hopelessly lost, but we still reach out in grace knowing that God is still in charge. Because he says, I want you to know these stories so that with perseverance and encouragement, you might have hope. That's grace. You and I, we are agents of that grace that others would come to know him and be saved. Let me pray for us. And after we pray, before the communion is received, we want to sing this song about grace. Grace, grace, greater than our sins. So let me pray for us as the worship band comes and lead us in this great, great song of grace. Father God, we thank you that you're a God of grace. That God, you want to do a mighty work in our lives. And that God, if you can reach somebody like King Ahaz that we don't know that he ever repented, but that you still extend grace to him, how much more should we be agents of that same grace for those that are in rebellion, those who are disobedient, those who are sinning so much they don't even know they're sinning anymore, but they're they're people that you love. They're people that you want to reach out to. They're people like Janet that just need somebody to come alongside them and extend grace that they would come to know you. Father, help us to be people of grace that lives our lives for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.